All right, so he goes. So the Egyptians, the Egyptians are not the same nation, and same thing with all the other ones. In fact, there was a king, and I think he was Achashverosh. Achashverosh is the, the king in the Purim story, and he had a grandfather by marriage, right? Achashverosh didn't actually belong to a royal family um, historically, um, but by marriage, he was related to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the Jews into the exile, um, into the first exile, to the best of my knowledge. Now, um, Nebuchadnezzar, is that true? First exile? Maybe I'm mixing it up. I think it's the first. Anyway, Nebuchadnezzar also conquered the entire world, and that's how Ahasuerus has, has a possession of the entire world. Nebuchadnezzar has a, um, he conquers the entire world, and in his effort to, um, to maintain his rule over the, over the world, what does he do? He moves all of the different um, nations from where they live to other areas. So take, for example, let's say he'll, he'll move the Egyptians and send them off to Germany, and the Germans will send them to, uh, to, I don't know, Australia, and the Australians will send them to uh, China. You know, he moves them around. Like that, the people are not in the same area. They rely very much on the government. They rely very much on the, on, on the authorities. And there's less of a chance of revolt. Okay, that's by the way something I told you. I think I believe it comes from the Talmud. I believe I know it from the Talmud. Anyway, even after this moment, um, every nation may have lost their identity over time. You know, maybe they were killed, annihilated. Maybe they were they were enslaved or moved or whatever. But there is one nation that has not lost its identity. Has lost its culture. There is one nation that has survived every type of travesty. And if one looks back into recent history, we can find a few circumstances um, where a few times where the Jewish people had had um, went through an attempted annihilation, attempted genocide. So um, you have the Holocaust, which is, I wrote it started in 1941. I don't think that's true. It started in the late 30s, right? late 30s okay someone's going to teach me something and then in 1967 when the state of israel is declared the um the uh, neighboring arab countries offer a friendly suggestion of pushing Nin the jews 1940 1948 oh my god look at me this guy is falling out ay yeah yeah okay don't tell anyone all right keep it a secret between us it's our secret okay? Okay. Excellent. <laughs> and then think about 1991. Saddam Hussein is trying to bomb the, uh, the bomb Israel with 30 Scud, more than 30 Scud missiles, right? So all of these, you have all of these times where the Jewish people, there's an attempted annihilation. But um, but what's what's unique about it is that this one nation, the Jewish nation, somehow exists. We're still here. Is Saddam Hussein here? No. Is Mr. Is Adolf Hitler left? Also not. We're there. Everyone else is gone, right? Nebuchadnezzar is gone too, but the Jewish people remain. Now, um, um, so it's interesting to note. It's interesting to note that in all in previous times, since Purim until now, there hasn't been a period of relative safety for the Jewish people like there is now or like there was then. Purim time, the Jewish people were at their safest possible point ever. There was a um, prime minister, there was a minister, uh, not the prime minister, but a very high 
Epstein in the in the royal court was a Jew. The queen was a Jew. Um, they had prominent prominent positions in society. The Jews were well accepted, right? And similarly, similarly now, just in recent history, we had a um, we had what well, <laughs> in very recent history we had a a president with a son-in-law who was Jewish. But um, but even before that, you had a senator. Joe Lieberman was Jewish or is Jewish. He's still alive and. And the Jewish people have a strong presence in 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 the nation. Uh, we're we're in a very comfortable time, thank God, and we don't we hope that God keeps it this way. Amen. Um, but somehow, in the height of of freedom, in the height of culture, yet again, the Jewish people are now in the story of Purim again. Uh, under cast under the dreaded fear of annihilation Haman takes you know we we know the story right we know the story and we're going to do it over and this time you're you're going to get to hear me sing a bit so um well let's let's do this in um can i can i ask somebody to share something on the screen or should i do it myself i'm going to ask somebody to do it um who can log on to safaria and pull up Megillas Esther, Alan's going to do it. Awesome, Alan. Thank you. You're going to have to share too on Zoom. Alan, do you know I, I, We can't hear you, but I take it as a yes. Yes. So it's Safaria and. Um, okay. So chapter 3, verse 8, um, it, it says Haman then says to King Achashverish, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the other peoples in all the provinces of your realm whose laws are different from those of any other people and who do not obey the king's laws. And it is not in your majesty's interest to tolerate them. Right there. This is awesome. I love this. Okay, now I'm going to read it for you with the cantillation notes. Are you ready? Okay, there you have it. That's how you read it with the cantillation notes. Haman says to Achashverosh, he says, there's this one nation. Take a look at the first line. Professor, if you want to put your mouth, your mouse right over there on the first line. One, two, three, four, five. The fifth word is hyphenated, Am Echad, right there. Yeshnoi Am Echad, there is one nation. Now the big question is, what is this one nation of which of which Haman makes reference to? Okay, I'm gonna get back to that soon. But um but he says that this one nation is Mefuzar Umefoyrod. That's the next two words. Mefuzar Umefoyrod. Mefuzar means dispersed. And Mephorod means scattered. scattered. So if you're wondering how Mephorod means scattered, scattered, so Pei Reish Dalid is the source letters, the Sherish of the word separate, or Pered, or Parod, or something like that. Okay, so there you have it. Okay, Professor, you can unshare the screen so we can see each other. Um, thank you so much. Thank you guys for your participation in this. It's awesome. So what happens next? So um, in this sentence, we see that Haman, he, 
we, we see how he has the chutzpah. How does a person have the chutzpah to suggest a genocide? It's a big deal. Genocide is nishkin pashat and maisa. It's a big deal to, to suggest let's kill an entire nation. By the way, in the, the Jewish people, um, uh, think think we're going to do a bit of contrasting with the Holocaust. Yeah, how long did it, the Holocaust last? About five to six years, right? And in that time, most, not all, but most of the Jewish population was exterminated. Um, and they, in that time, they collected our grandparents from all over different, all over the world, from all over Eastern Europe and Europe. They collected them and they shuttled them in trains. To, to, to the gas chambers or to the concentration camps, right? Um, Homon's, Homon's plan was not to shuttle everybody to mass murder camps. He had a different plan. He was going to empower the people to, to, to kill out the entire nation on one day. So if, if a person had a non-Jewish neighbor, they were, to, they were going to receive a secret letter and the details would remain secret, and you know it would be kind of like a um, there would be this kind of social peer pressure of everybody's doing the same thing. So one one person at a time would join in this effort. Where if they had a Jewish neighbor, they went to get him. Um, and uh, and so that there you see like a contrast, right? Instead of taking five day five years, Haman's plan was that this would take one day. Everybody would participate, and it would take one day. And that, um, so so what happens? Haman notices that the Jewish people are am echad. They're one. They're one people. Yeshnoi am echad. There is one nation, right? What makes them one? In what way are they one? So um, the the. Um, with a bit of with a with a bit of insight, it's easy to determine what makes the nation one. We all have a very similar culture. Six days a week we work, and on the seventh day we rest. That's that's a really obvious um, telltale sign that we're all doing our own thing. Um, I'm looking back at that pasuk, and he says at the end of it, he says. Um, their, their culture and their lifestyles is different from everybody else. The rules of the king, they're not doing that. They're not doing them. You know, the king says work seven days a week or whatever the king says. The king says you can eat whatever you want. And the, the Jews don't do that. Right. That's understanding one, and I'm going to tell you something deep in a moment. So we have this entire, we have this whole culture that everybody else is, um, that everybody else looks at us and says we're weird, right? So even though the people are spread out, we're all doing the same thing. So when it comes to the dress code, the Jews look different, um, and when they speak, they have a speak different language. Whose grandparents spoke Yiddish, right? So if you spoke Yiddish, or La, there was another one, Ladina, Ladino, or something. And that was like a predecessor to Yiddish and before that Aramaic and then Hebrew. We have these different languages, right? The Jews eat at the same restaurants and non-Jews don't eat at Jewish restaurants. Nowadays they do because we make better food, but don't tell anyone, right? We have our own shuls, right? Nobody comes to who, who we don't all pray in the same rooms. There's so many differences that were telltale signs. And Haman comes to King Ahasuerus and he says to him, look how different this nation is to what you want in your cohesive 
um, greater community. But I want to tell you now a deeper concept, something that comes from the Kabbalah. Who's ready for Kabbalah? You're meant to be 40 years old to learn Kabbalah. So if you're not 40, now's a good time to hop off. I'm not 40. See you later. Okay, here it goes. Um, the, the, uh, the Kabbalah tells us that Achashverosh is actually kind of a code. It's a code name for someone else. So um, to preface, throughout the entire Megillah, there is no mention of God. Did anyone notice that? There is no mention of God in the Kabbalah, in the entire Megillah. So um, one of one of the teachings of the Kabbalah is that there is actually a lot of mentions of God. It's just in disguise. In fact, um, the word Esther itself means disguise. In if you translate Esther into English, it means disguise. Um, so so what? Oh, so Achashverish is a construct of two of a bunch of Hebrew words. Achris, Veracious, Shaloi. And if I was able to type in Hebrew on this computer and share my screen, I would show you what it looks like. But Achris, Veracious, Shaloi, you'll have to believe me on this, is kind of, you can, if you cut out a couple of letters and you mix it all and you push it all together, so then um, it, it can be built out of the word Achashverish. What does Achris, Veracious, Shaloi mean? Achris, the end, Veracious, the beginning, Shaloi, they're all his. Right? What's the who's who owns who's in possession of the end of the beginning? Who's in possession of all time, place, and everything else? There is only one. And not only that, who else do we call Melech? Who gets the term Melech? There's only one Melech, right? Um, aside, we have actually have someone in our community who is who has the name Melech Shlomo. That's his name from birth, King Solomon Melech Shlomo. But aside from him. There's only one other Melech, right? And that's that's Hashem. So um, so the Kabbalah tells us that HaMelech is in reference to Hashem. So, um, Professor Blumenthal, can you reshare the page? And we're going to take a look again at that Pasuk. If you still have it available. Do you have it available? Okay. One, two, three. We're going to discover that, the, that over here you have... Okay, do me a favor. Zoom in a bit because I'm hard of, hard of uh, us. Oh, good, good. Okay, excellent. Okay, so take a look right over there. Number number eight, right? By Yoimer Haman. Haman says, Who to whom? Melachashverish to the king. Who's the king? Hashem. Hashem. Oh, now you can actually see it here. Take a look. Alef Ches Shin Achris. Yeah, Alef Ches is for Achris. And then Reish Shin at the end is Reishus. So you can see the turn, the letters fit into what I told you before. So Haman says to the king Achashverosh, and he says, there is this one nation. Are you familiar with that nation? They're spread out all over the, all over the world between all the nations. But now I'm on the second line. V'dosehem, shoynois mikolam, they have their own religion. The rules of the king, the rules of the king, they don't do it. Did you follow that one with me? Someone's for bringing over here. I'm not sure who. Okay. So, 
So did you discover that with me in the pasuk over there? Uh, so Haman is saying to Hashem in a way, he's saying, look, your nation, your one nation, they are so dedicated. They they call themselves Jewish and they so they stand themselves apart so much. Nevertheless, as Dosei HaMelech Enomosim, they're not fulfilling the um, the king's instructions. And therefore, the last three four words, V'lamelech to Hashem, Ein Shoi V'lanicham. It's not even worth it. Um, see it in the uh, in the English, and it is not in your majesty's interest to tolerate them. So that's a good chap. That came from the Kabbalah. That's a Kabbalistic idea from the Arizal. What is it that Homon discovered? Uh, Professor, you can unshare. Un what is it that Homon discovered that he respond that he calls out to Hashem or to the king, Achashverish, and he tells him it's not worth it? So let's go to the first the first chapter of Megillah. You don't have to look inside. We all know this one. Um, he's making a party. Um, and what does he do? He's serving food for everybody, right? He's serving food. And what's the, the verse on the food? It says, there is um the drinking was according to a person's wishes. There was no compulsion. There was no coercion. The Gemara tells us that if a person wanted to eat kosher, there was kosher. If a person wanted to eat drink kosher wine, there was kosher wine available. Whatever a person wanted to do, whatever food he wanted to eat, it was available. The chefs were multi, were internationally acclaimed and they could do anything. What but? Nevertheless, what happens? Number one, Mordechai, the righteous leader of the generation, told the people, don't even go. You don't belong there. Don't fraternize. But then what happens is that when they, when they went, they couldn't withstand the social pressure, and they ate, and they drank. They ate and they drank to their heart's desires. More, um, not, not just overeating, but they ate what they were not meant to eat. And to this, Haman says, they're not keeping Hashem's rules. Um, they're, they're not playing according to the book. Okay. So what happens next? So we have an issue, right? We have an issue that the people have, until now, been considered Am Echad, one, one united nation. But because they allowed it themselves to split and disintegrate and, and split and splinter and disperse by not keeping to their culture, so now, in a way, Hashem kind of lifts his super, his supernal and eternal, um, I'm looking for the word, uh, supervision over them. And what happens then? When, when a Jewish person loses his, his supernal supervision, then he becomes like anyone else, and anyone else is subject to annihilation. Let's talk about, let's move on to another interesting section, which all ties in, of course. Haman, um, Haman would walk around with a idol, with an idol hanging off his neck. He had a necklace with an idol, and I'm sure you've seen things like that in, the, in your life. And he... he had a rule passed, a law was passed that if if Homon walks past, you must bow to him. But, um, but, and the big but is that um, 
the the people so that everybody followed the rules aside from someone. One person didn't follow the rules. Who was that? Mordechai. Mordechai says, and um, there's a passage for this one too. Um, yeah. Chapter 3, verse 2. You're going to take a look. Chapter 3, verse 2. Mordechai says um, he is not going to, he's not going to bow. Why? So the Medrash actually tells us some interesting stuff. There's a story that happened many years prior that Haman had been a slave owned by Mordechai. Fascinating. And they had a contract of possession that Mordechai owned Haman. And this contract had been tattooed onto Haman's foot. A fascinating turn of events, right? So Haman actually has not just not not only he has uh, anti-Semitic biases, he actually has a personal vendetta that he's got against Mordechai, that he's got against the Jewish people because he belongs to a Jew. So Mordechai says he's not going to bow, and in the words of the Megillah, it says, "V'chol Hamelech Asher B'Shar Hamelech." And that means all the king's courtiers in the palace gates knelt and bowed low to Haman. Because that was the instructions of the king. And that's the end of chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Mordechai would not kneel or bow low. Mordechai, there was no way that Mordechai was going to play along with this kind of... Um, with this kind of attempt at getting him to to um, serve a to serve an idol, but it's in this verse that we discover something quite unique. We discover a characteristic typical of a Jewish leader, a strong uh, a strong um, inner strength that uh, he's not going to pay he's not going to pay attention to the wokeness of of the of the society he's not going to be influenced and affected by what's going on the ministers say bow and mordechai says i'm going to do what's right it's a very jewish ideal to do to do what's right to stand up for what's right even when it's flowing against the norm side by side with mordechai there's another jewish leader who risks her life for the sake of the people so let's let's do a bit of recount, and I'm going to tell you some interesting details about Esther. Esther was Mordechai's niece. Tell me if I'm overwhelming you with information. Are we okay? We're okay. Esther is Mordechai's niece. Esther is also Mordechai's wife. Mordechai, it seems to me, if I mean, this I might have to check a second time, but Mordechai was probably married once before is widowed and then remarried his niece very it's a it's considered to be a uh, a special thing to do in ta- in the talmudic era to marry one's niece which means really to give to offer the ultimate protection of a spouse and a home and a, and a source of income to uh, to one's niece now what happens um the king is searching for a new wife and he doesn't care if you're if you're married once before or not to him it's irrelevant and um he he finds he finds esther 
what happens to Esther? Esther gets gets stuck and she gets married to him. Esther, by the way, it said it's recounted in the in the Megillah how she does no preparations for um for the king. She doesn't prepare herself at all. She just comes as she is. In fact, she fasts later on in the story. But then Esther, um, after after she's married for a while and this whole story comes out public, Esther is um Esther willingly. All right. Okay. We're, st we're still safe. Don't worry. Esther um, willingly goes to the king, and she subjects she subjects herself to him, even though that that would be considered a a um, you know a not a not good thing to do. But she does it because her intention is to save the Jewish people. Her hope is that when she's gonna she hosts him for a meal, and you can imagine what follows, and and um. At the second meal, she says to him, um, um, she says, and I'm looking for the words here. Um, she says in chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, is that where it says it? Yeah, it says, Al-Tadami bin Afshaykh, don't convince yourself that you will be safe. You will get, they'll they'll find you anyway. That's what, that's what Mordechai said. No matter you think that you're safe in the in the king's palace, you're not safe there. They'll find, they'll figure you out, and they'll kill you too. Mordechai tells that to her, and she said, and he tells her, "Go tell the king what's going on. Spill the beans on Haman and get rid of him." Um, and he says to him, he says, Mordechai says with these words, he says, um. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter, while you and your father's house will perish. And then the last words of chapter, this is chapter 4, verse 14, the last ver words of the sentence, he says, Who knows if this is the very reason why you have attained such royal position for just such a crisis. Um, and, and Esther puts herself on the line and saves the day as we know the story. But there's more to it. How does Esther prepare for these moments with the king? So a normal person who's trying to be attractive to their spouse is going to um, make sure they're not emaciated. They will put on makeup and perfumes and who knows what to face, all the important things that are that other people find valuable, that they find valuable. Esther doesn't do that. She goes into a three-day fast and she asks that the entire nation fast as well. And you have that in the Megillah as well. I don't have the source. It says, Sumo yomim. Fast for me these three days. Three days that she wants everybody to fast together. And Esther fasts as well. And of course, what happens when you fast? You lose all of your uh, grace. Um, gets lost uh, with, with no energy. Um, but it is semblant of what the entire nation does and how they behave in fixing um, in fixing their relationship with Hashem. 
And so what you notice is that for the entire year that follows, excuse me, what you notice is that for the entire year between the, the command, between the release of this news and the date of annihilation, which is meant to be on Purim, the, um, the entire, the Jewish people are in this kind of like limbo state where they know that it could happen, but that they can do something to change it. And so the entire nation, every single one of them is returning to God. They're in a state of teshuva. They're returning to God. They're repenting for their ways and they're reuniting as a nation. That, by the way, comes from a, a source in Kabbalah as well, um, which I can get for you if you want. Um, another interesting thing, another interesting note is that the the nations that the Jewish people had this kind of option, they could choose if they wanted to forfeit their religion. They could choose to convert out of the faith and then they would not get hurt. But for the entire year, under that immense pressure of knowing that everything is coming to an end next year on the 14th of Adar, nobody gave up. And that's a, that's a very strong um, uh, signal of the warm and ever-pumping Jewish heart and soul that exists um, in, in their part, in their, in their souls. And so... After, after the Jews reunite and reconnect and they become one, so then they become one people, united through one Torah and given by the one God. And so you, again, you have the feature of Am Echad. And what happens next is, of course, that Haman's decree becomes null and void and Hashem's deliverance is complete. It isn't just a deliverance from distress, but it goes to a complete relief to the extent that it's a 100% reversal. Instead of the Jews being afraid of their enemies, now the enemies are afraid of the Jews. Instead of the Jews being ashamed of their Jewishness, now they can show openly and proudly that they are Jews and they can, they can acknowledge and follow the whole entire Torah. And as the Megillah itself says in chapter 18, verse 16, it says, By the way, that's one of the verses everyone reads out loud, in case you're wondering. It says, The Jews enjoyed light and gladness, happiness and honor. And so, my friends, brothers and sisters, it is my fervent prayer and blessing to all of us that we take the lesson of Purim to heart, that we be like Mordechai and like Esther, Jewish leaders in our own homes and in our own communities, that we shouldn't bow to the demands of the people around us, that we should be able to stand strong for what is right and, and be strong in that. And the greatest hope of all is that we merit, that we return, that we in return merit the light and gladness and happiness and honor promised by the Megillah, and by God. Thank you very much. Okay, the table is open to comments and questions and answers. Someone's going to have to be brave and break the ice. Go for Rabbi it, Rabbi Markowitz. Rabbi Markowitz, um... You had you had mentioned about her about Esther's three day fast. Um, I was under the impression that 
part of the reason for the fast was because she was going in unsummoned, that she was not summoned by Ahasuerus. So therefore, her going in was a chutzpah. It was an affront. And he would either have to stretch his hand out to save her or she would perish. And that that would yeah. that, that that was a large reason for the three day fast because she was she, she was afraid she could die. Okay, so why so why fast? So the question then is why fast? Because because it says that when you fast, uh, that 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 that's that's one of the things that can that can help to prevent death. It's it's something that can prevent an evil an evil decree. So you're telling me something religious, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's so. Then, then you are hundred percent on it. She fasts, even though, even though um, she's going to violate basic palace rules, right? Yeah. She's going ahead, and she's pushing forward to to plead mercy for her nation, even though it means that she might actually be killed because of it. Exactly, and. Therefore, why not prepare yourself with as many weapons and the best weapons that you can? And if, in that case, if fasting, if prayer, if Shuvat Tzedakah and all the rest, why not do that? Because if that's the best chance you have of survival, I, I can't see why not do that. So here's the big question, guys. Why don't we hire Rachelea to be the Torah teacher? Because she got it all right already. Sorry. <laughs> why Sorry. You got it perfect. That's excellent. I love it. I paid attention in seminary all those years ago. It was it was worth every second. Alan, you had a question. Yeah. So why is it the right thing to do to kill all those for the Jews to kill all those people who were only directing? I mean, I know there there wasn't time to sort of reverse the decree. Okay, so that's a really good question and a very important question. The question that Alan's asking is that the Megillah ends with, in chapters uh, probably late 7 or maybe beginning of 8, that the Jew, the Jewish people are able to defend themselves and go ahead and kill the people who are attempting to oppress them. And Alan, the answer to your question is, oh, well, the issue is, of course, why is that the right thing to do, to go kill these people? Instead, the best thing is to annul the decree, cancel the decree that the Jews are in trouble, and then you don't have to worry about anything. The solution, of course, is that, um, as the Megillah itself says, a king's instructions cannot be canceled. If the king said something, it can never be reversed. That is the Persian policies of uh, diplomacy. If the king said something, it can't be reversed. And so what happens is that they can't get rid of this, um, this issue. They can't get rid of the threat. So instead, what do they do? They say they give permission to the Jew to fight back. And I guess what you have here is the first historical record of the Jewish army. No, because we have armies. Okay, cancel. But that's definitely the story right there. Is that um, is that it's at this moment where the Jews have permission to fight back to defend themselves. So they're not going out in cold in cold blood to murder their neighbor, right? Instead, they're going to protect themselves. 
And an example of that is something that the Megillah writes, um, uh, which, where is it in the Megillah? It says, um, something like that. It says, um, they didn't take, a, they did not touch the spoils. Let's do a quick search, see if I can find it over here. Yeah. So Esther 9.15, it says, but they did not lay their hands on the spoil. That's what it says in 9.15. See there. So, Alan, does that answer the question? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, that's good. Um, I'm here to answer questions, but I should be trying to answer deeper questions too. Um, I'm sorry, that was rude. Alan, I didn't mean to say that wasn't a good question. I meant to say, I want to tell you like the inside, the deepness of this. So I'm going to make something up for you over here, a, a deeper thought on the same term. What does it mean they didn't touch the spoils, right? They didn't touch the spoils. They didn't take gold and silver. That's what it means literally. And it's probably true. But uh, when... If, if what are the spoils that a Jew can benefit from in the home of a non-Jew? What value does something have to a Jew that isn't inherently Jewish? That's an idea that I just thought of right now that I think, I think fits deeply into those words. They didn't grab the spoils because the, the spoils of like a non-Jewish home are of what value to a to a to a Jewish man or family or woman or kids, etc. Who likes that idea that I just said? Because I made it up. Argue with me, someone. Professor Blumenthal likes it. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I like it. <laughs> the um, I'm reminded that at the at the banquet at the beginning, Achashverus banquet at which the Jews are attending. If I'm not mistaken. There were spoils there. The, the 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 accoutrements of the temple had been seized, and were actually there at that at that banquet. So, so so perhaps the Jews are avoiding anything anything that sort of remotely resembles the idea of 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 you know taking taking the spoils and sort of mimicking the uh, what was done to the to the temple objects and, okay that's that's good that's a very uh, i interrupted you i'm sorry Go no no me. that's it i i got nothing more <laughs> that's okay it. that was a really good comment that was a really good comment you know, what you wanted to say is that the jews um didn't want to be like him who stole their stuff they're not going to steal more stuff right yeah okay that's that's strong that's strong i want to give you some context to the to the party of Achashverosh. Why did Achashverosh make make a party? Was he bored? Yes, no. he was. Number one, he was bored. But I mean, Achashverosh is known. Um, the Talmud tells us that he wasn't the smartest of kings. In fact, his wife Vashti actually um, used to insult him regularly that he's not so great and he that he doesn't he hasn't earned his throne because he number one he married into the family. He wasn't even a he wasn't from the blood the blood of a king. And number two is that he hadn't done anything to earn it. Um, he, he inherited through his wife 
the kingdom. What? Uh, so why? Um, so why did Achishverosh throw a party? So we all remember probably the verses. They, there's a, a very common idiom that goes: the writing is on the wall. Right? What's that from? That's from the book of Daniel. Um, there is the prophet Daniel, who talks about how um, he talks about the rise and fall of Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that happened, how does Nebuchadnezzar, how does Nebuchadnezzar die? Um, because he goes, I am pretty sure if I recall correctly, he goes crazy with the knowledge that he's, he's, um, he's going to lose everything soon because there's this unexplainable writing in blood on the wall. Okay. By the way, um, if you read Harry Potter, the writing on the wall features there too. But don't tell Mrs. Harry Potter it came from the Jews. That is not whatever. Okay, but what did I want to tell you? Okay, so why did Achishreish make the party? Because Nebuchadnezzar had a, there was a prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that it would last a certain amount of time. And I think the number is 70 years, 70, 70 years. And Nebuchadnezzar um, had a calculation. And um, after he died and his, and Achishreish takes over, maybe there was one king in between, Achishreish had a, the same um, count and it was off. The count was off. And so he calculated the end of 70 years to be somewhat earlier. And it's at that point that Ahasuerus says, now I'm safe. Now I can make a party and now I can bring her out the special ornaments that my grandfather-in-law stole from the temple. Now I can bring it all out and make a whole display. In fact, Ahasuerus celebrated his 180-day party, which is more than half a year, he celebrated his party um, while dressed in the clothes of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest. Uh, another thing, another fascinating thing is that Nebuchadnezzar stole King Solomon's throne. King Solomon's throne was was a fantastic mechanical device that had, if I understand correctly, had invested in it divine energy, and um, there were lions and other animals made out of gold. This can, this is all described in the Talmud. I didn't make it up. Um, and lions and other animals form, shaped out of gold that would sit on the thrones on the uh, on the on the stairs leading up to the throne, and if a guest was welcome, the animals would like extend a paw to lift up the guest from step to step. But if the guest was not welcome, then the animals would strike and shout and roar at the, uh, at the guest. Nebuchadnezzar, and I think Ahasuerus made the same mistake, attempted to go up this throne. But um, he did not merit. He wasn't good enough, and he um, he was forever injured by one of the lions hitting him. Um, I think on his leg or something like that. Anyway, that's an interesting piece of information. Uh, what else? Anyone with another question or comment? Okay, so here's some here's some announcements. Guys, get ready for announcements. This coming. Monday, 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 5 p.m., we are doing a live on Zoom 
Hamintosh bake. Now, if you think that you have two left arms and you can't cook or bake, so don't worry. My wife will teach you how to do every part of it. I'll be there too as well. Don't worry, I'll be there. Um, but she'll be leading it. She's really good at this. Sign up if you want. If you don't want, invite your wife to sign up. If your wife doesn't want, then sign up anyway. Okay. But um, uh, that's part one. Part two, announcement two is that on Wednesday, my wife will be teaching a ladies class only, ladies only. So all the men here, please do not come. I won't be there either. Don't worry. Um, but invite your spouses, wives, girlfriends, aunts, whatever, whoever you want. Um, and she'll be teaching about, she'll be teaching a class called Esther Unmasked. And that's on Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. This coming Sunday, in conjunction and coordination with the Jewish community of Blue Ridge in North Georgia, we will be up there distributing Mishlach Manas packages. So if you live in North Georgia, I hope to see you in person there um, with a smile and bring your family and friends. And I'm looking forward. Okay, so that's that. And then the next thing is on Thursday night, Rabbi Markovitz, yours truly, will be going to federal prison. Anyone want to come to federal prison? So 